Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is a Shetland-born writer, historian and presenter known for his work charting Scotland's history and landscape. He's written several books based on his research of the Scottish National Collection of Aerial Photography, an archive of millions of images, and wrote and presented three series of the BBC documentary Scotland from the Sky. His first major work of non-fiction, Fallen Glory, The Lives and Deaths of the World's Greatest Lost Buildings, was named 2015 Book of the Year by several publications. His latest work, The Edge of the Plain, How Borders Make and Break Our World, took him from Israel to Mexico, many places in between and back home to Scotland. It's a timely exploration of how the demarcation of states and nations has developed our world and the effect that borders have on our politics and our climate. James Crawford, welcome to Meet the Writers. I'm delighted to be here, Georgina. Uh, Jamie, your own family has a fascinating history with borders, and I thought we'd start with that. Yes, you know, when, when I was writing about this, one of the things that, that struck me was that my great-grandparents on, on both sides of my family emigrated, left Scotland, and were economic migrants, and they went to America. And in today's world, we often think of economic migrants almost as a pejorative term. You know, it's people who are coming to take something from the country that they're going to. But at that point, there was a mobility. They were able to travel. They, they weren't skilled workers in any way. You know, on my, on my mother's side, my great-grandparents were farm workers. My, my great-grandfather was a, a stable keeper. My great-grandmother was the housekeeper. On my father's side, my great-grandfather came from a long line of fishermen from Fraserburgh in the northeast of Scotland. And they both left at the start of the 20th century looking for new lives, you know, basically leaving the country of their birth behind. What's interesting, in both cases, they returned. And on my mother's side, my great-grandparents went through Ellis Island. They got on a train and headed into the continental interior and worked a cattle ranch on the far side of the Rocky Mountains in Colorado, where there was no other people within 100 miles. So it was just them, a bunch of cowboys looking after Texas longhorn cattle. And my great-grandmother just couldn't deal with it, couldn't deal with the isolation. And after two years, they left and they and they came back and they ended up working a farm, interestingly enough, given the, the subject of the book, on the border between Scotland and England. And then on my, my father's side, my, my great-grandfather met my great-grandmother in Detroit. So he went through Canada, passed into Detroit, determined not to be a fisherman. So, you know, when he passed over the border at the age of 17... Uh, he was asked his occupation, he said mechanic. And obviously he'd gone to the right place, going to Detroit, and he ended up working on the first ever assembly line, which was the car production plant, Henry Ford's production plant, the Highland Park plant, and he was putting together the Model T Ford. And he worked there for a decade. And my grandfather was born there, and my grand-aunt were born there. And then the Great Depression hit. So they, they arrived in Detroit in the 1920s, and then 1929, you have the Wall Street crash, which triggers the Great Depression. He actually kept his job. About a third of, of people in Detroit were out of work. You know, they had hunger strikes. They were, a large proportion of that city were homeless. It was a city that had grown massively. And so they, they for, for years, talked about what should, what should they do? You know, was this place to stay? Was this where the future was? And in the end, they tossed a coin about whether to stay or whether to go. And, you know, thinking back to that when I was writing the book, you know, that's one of those real, I mean, talk about sliding doors moments. As that coin spun in the air of that kitchen 
in Detroit, I guess I flickered in and out of existence. Yes. Because if they hadn't gone back, I I, I wouldn't be here. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that was that was one of the things I really wanted to tell that story. And it's a brief story. And I don't, you know, they didn't leave any journals or diaries or anything. So I only really have this family tale and there's not much more to find out beyond that. But I just thought to start off the book, it, it just brings home, you know, we talk about borders as these big geopolitical issues, but they always home in on individuals. There's always human stories and just a huge number of human stories related to these. So so that was my starting point. And, mm-hmm. it, I, and I just wanted to tell that story and, you know, and reflect on, on the fact that they could move. And you, you, in fact, you write that in the book. You say, what is a border if not a story? But how would you define a border? I think that's the interesting thing. I mean, that's why I wrote the book, because... I don't think there is any perfect definition of it. And, and, you know, in many ways, the book is a deconstruction of borders, of what they are, of where they came from. And I think that idea of a story is, for me, the perfect way because no one story is the same. So no border is the same. You know, you think about the geopolitical mechanism, the the, the territorial mechanism that they're they're designed for, but no border exists naturally. You do get natural borders, ecological borders, ecotones, we, we call them the best examples, the tree line, you know, tree line, a, a, a point above which on a mountain or a hill trees won't grow. But that changes all the time because temperature changes all the time. But when you, when you look at political borders, there is no natural example of that. Mm. Even, even if you co-opt a river or a mountain range, it doesn't know it's a border. It's just, it's just a natural feature of the landscape. So you have to tell a story. You have to say, this is the point where my territory begins or ends. And there is no other way of doing that than, than coming up with a story. And, of course, the Greeks were extremely good at this and were the first people, really, to, to figure out the sort of technology of, of making a border. That's right. I mean, you know, borders pre-exist the Greeks by, by you know, um, thousands of years. And, you know, I write in the book about the very first border, the very first border we know about, which is in Mesopotamia, in, in, in Iraq. And that was a border drawn between two, two city-states, basically fighting over a field of barley, you know, a rich field of barley. And, um, and that was a border pillar. We know about this story because it's told on a border, border pillar written in our earliest known form of writing, Sumerian cuneiform. Once you get to the Greek period, they're thinking about it more philosophically. I mean, what's interesting about that first border in the context of stories is if you think about the point where humans stop being nomadic and for almost all of our history we've been nomadic and really it's the last 6,000 years or so that we've set down roots. That first border, that pillar that tells that story of that earliest border we know about says that the border was drawn by the father of all the gods at the beginning of time. So that gives you an inkling to the sorts of stories we're telling, that borders are eternal, that they're always there. And, you know, the Greeks wrestled with this. They wrestled with this idea of, well, where, you know, where is the borderline? Uh, where do we put it? And once again, religion was a big factor. You know, they started, they would use natural features, they would use rivers, they would use mountain ranges, but that's not always going to work. So what they then started using were shrines, points beyond which you were into no man's land, this kind of wild territory, and points within which you were in the cultivated, civilised landscape. And at the, at the beginning of the development of Greek civilization, those areas, those civilised areas were small, 
but they would get bigger and bigger and then the borders would start to bump into other borders and then inevitably you get conflict. And, you know, when those conflicts would occur, the Greeks would fight battles over them, but they'd fight a very specific battle. It wouldn't be if the entire army, it would be a set number of people. And they'd say, whoever wins this fight gets to have the border. Now, whether that's true or not, you know, these are the stories that they tell mm. and that they told. And there's a great example, um, Pausanias, who's this, you know, Greco-Roman geographer, writes about a graveyard for one of these battles known as the Battle of the Champions in the, the mountains of the Peloponnese. And he found it hundreds of years after that battle. And supposedly. you went to look for it too. And I, I went to look for it too, and I didn't find it. <laughs> you know, I followed, you know, there's been so much scholarship over where this site might be, which might not even exist. I mean, that's always the, the you know, the kind of the tease of archaeology. Is, is this true or not? Is this, a, is this a tall tale or is it based, rooted in fact? And yeah, I, I, I walked a path on a remote mountain ridge, found a sort of fallen down old shepherd's hut and nothing else. And, you know, could I believe a battle was fought there? Well, quite possibly, but mm. there's, no, there's no evidence to suggest it was. But it was interesting, you know, looking for, looking for this ancient border line or mm. this site of a, a border battle from thousands of years ago. And the Greeks also seemed to use it as a sort of metaphor of the journey from boy to man. Yes, that's right. I mean, it was a, it was a very masculine thing for them in, in that way that, that women can own property you know in, in in that sort of early Greek civilization and you know for the Athenians when you were uh, in your late teens you'd have to go and spend two years on the borderline almost to, to walk it you know to guard it to be a border guard and that would almost imprint the limit of your territory on, on these people who would then come to become citizens hmm. so you know at the same time as 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 these teenagers were were progressing into manhood, they did that by walking and spending time on this borderline. So it's a both a it's both a physical, literal thing and a metaphor mm. for this this journey from from boy to man. You know, a really quite odd thing in 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 a lot of ways, and and you know. It, it's something that the Spartans did as well, not just the Athenians. And, you know, they had this strange ritual where they would send their their sort of young men out into the hills to fend for themselves. Um, and, and part of that process was almost to, to, to get all their undisciplined nature out of them so that then they could come back and be, be good Spartans, mm. um, you know, to the extent they would even be allowed to kill slaves. In fact, were perhaps encouraged to do it. And again, it was that, that sort of transgressive aspect to it, you know, mm. that, that connection between the literal and the metaphorical in terms of how they conceived of borders. The book is really beautifully written and I love the fact that you've gone to all of these places and you also weave in so much other literature. So, for instance, when you're talking about the Somme and the battle there, we have all the war poets coming in. You went and walked Hadrian's Wall. You talk about the Romans, who, of course, were forever expanding their territory. But I wonder how and when the borders that we mostly know about now began. Yeah, I mean, the, the system of bordering that we operate right now is about 370 odd years old. It dates to 1648, very specifically to 1648, because what you get then is the, the Peace of Westphalia, which is a peace settlement after 30 years of religious war in Europe. And to, to simplify, to kind of talk about it in crude terms, at that point, before that point, there was no real way of, of mapping... Uh, politics in Europe spatially. 
because there were it was a feudal system and all these different bonds of fealty, you know, some of which went all the way back to Rome and, and, and to the Pope. So this was one of the reasons there were so many problems. Once you had the schism in the church with the, the, the sort of emergence of Protestantism, you had this problem of what what religion is being practiced or or what um, what teachings are being followed in in specific territories, and no one knew what those specific territories were. So the idea was a monarch has the right to decide what religion is practiced in a set geographical area. So then we have to know what the set geographical area is. So that sets people off on a race to draw borders, and not just vague ideas of what those borders were, you know, the marches, as they called them, those edge, those edges, which were, you know, really quite blurred. Instead, and this starts to dovetail with the technological advancements you get with the Enlightenment, you can actually survey to scale where a territory begins and ends. And that's really what creates the borders we know today. And that's what creates nations. Because before that point, there were no nations. Mm-hmm. You know, nations emerged out of this. And arguably... It created peace, but it also set us on a collision course for the First and Second World Wars, which in many ways were, were border wars. Oh, absolutely. And particularly then when you look at perhaps the the colonisation of Africa and these completely false borders which split up communities. And, and then, of course, when, when the British or the French or whoever they were withdrew, again, so much conflict. That's right, yeah. I mean, I mean, if you think of borders in terms of these are about corralling resources, and they're also about colonialism, you know. So it's it's both what are the resources on the ground where I am? If you're an island nation like Britain, actually, you know your borders quite well because you're an <laughs> island. It's quite straightforward in, in, in many ways. But then those borders expand into territories that become colonies. And you think places like India and places throughout Africa. And, you know, that, that race to take these resources... And, you know, it was almost the new god of industrialism. You know, we weren't really fighting over god and religion anymore. We were fighting over things like coal and oil and, you know, crops and and people in a mm. lot of ways. And, and, you know, as I say, arguably, it was one of the things that drove Germany in particular to be, you know, aggressive during that period because it felt like it was missing out on a lot of these resources. And, I mean, and I write about this in the book, that, you know, you get this almost grotesque situation with the First World War where it's fought between two borders, you know, these trench lines that run from the the Channel Coast and the, the sort of North Sea Coast all the way down to the, the mountains of Switzerland, you know, and if you pulled out those trench lines, those two, you know, it wasn't just two trench lines, it was many, many trench lines. If you pulled them out straight, they could encircle the entire world. They're that long. And, you know, it just shows you how far bordering can take you if it takes you in the wrong direction. Yeah. You you also pose the question, can you survive as a people without land, without territory? And you give a great example of the, of the Sami people. Yes, that's right. I mean, that's where I wanted to start the book because I thought it was so interesting. You had, you know, this uh, nomadic people, you know, whose way of life, I mean, their way of life has changed, but in, in a lot of respects, who they are and what they do hasn't changed that much since they moved into that territory in the north of Scandinavia at the end of the last ice age. Um, But through all those thousands of years, nations have encroached on their territory to the extent that then they they talk about their territory as as Sapmi. Um, But they never had any borders. And now it's occupied by Finland, Sweden, Russia, Norway. Um, You know, it's kind of cut in, in four pieces. 
and they've had to adapt and you know and that's been difficult for them you know at various times you know they've the Norwegians try to assimilate them try to remove their language try to stop them practicing their culture they don't do that now and you know there there's a truth and reconciliation commission dealing with what happened to the sami particularly after the the second world war in in norway and some sami not all many just live in cities and and are culturally and ethnically linked and don't live any different to to you or I but some still live with their the reindeer herds which they used to hunt and for hundreds of years now they've they've there's a kind of semi domestication they travel with them and i was fascinated by the way that the the movement of the reindeer effectively draws the border of the territory for the sami who look after those reindeer and their families and they call this a sida and it it shifts all the time and one of the reasons it's shifting a lot right now is because of climate change mm. because the reindeer need enough snow to be able to dig down through the snow to 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 eat ground lichen which is what they live off and actually because of the the fluctuations of temperature there's much more freeze thaw at the moment they're having to move further than ever before to find those um, those those grazing grounds and crossing back and forth over these borders and for a time they were forbidden from crossing the borders of their own land so it's a re- it's a really interesting area and and now in the 21st century what they're coming up against is is uh the kind of green revolution you know countries looking to 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 uh, reopen copper mines because we need copper for things like electric cars and mobile phones and and, and things like that or or actually wanting to cull reindeer because they're over grazing so you know there's this new battle going on that that you have countries trying to shift to a green economy but in doing that they're actually destroying the the lives and livelihood of of this people who've always been there mm-hmm. and so that raises the question do they need do they need a border do they need their own territory or and the sami aren't arguing for that actually they're more arguing for stronger user rights to the extent that almost you you give the land a right not to be exploited or extracted or destroyed in the way that a copper mine might destroy it or you know intensive um, fish farming might destroy a landscape mm. and that's one of the things they're arguing for at the moment. Israel, Palestine of course is another area where people were seeking their own territory and of course it's caused nothing but conflict. Yeah, I mean that's I mean and I, I travelled there and I I went to stay. I went to stay in, a, in a, a strange hotel. It's the it's billed as the hotel with the worst view in the world, and it's it's an artwork. It's owned by Banksy, the graffiti artist, and he opened it in 2017 as a as a, as a sort of provocation. But it, it's got uh, you know it's got rooms you can stay in. It's you know it's got a restaurant within it, but it's set just four meters away from a separation barrier in Bethlehem, and it's in the it's in. Uh, the West Bank in the occupied territories. And, you know, I was on the first floor with a balcony that basically looked on straight onto this this wall, you know, this um, sort of tall slab of concrete. And when you think of, of borders and border lines, normally we think of a contiguous line, a line that just, you know, goes from one place to the other with no breaks in between. What you have in Israel and Palestine is just this kind of endless sequence of borders, almost border archipelagos. Sometimes the border encircles an entire village, um, you know, or it cuts Palestinians off from their, their farmland. And, you know, taking aside all of the kind of politics and the religion there, you know, what I felt from being there was you just, you had a, a vision of a dark future for bordering. You know, if we take some of the rhetoric that's around at the moment to its 
almost its logical extreme, that's what you get is a separation of of people, one who has holds all the power, the other who doesn't, mm. and increasingly you just cut off and segregate and ghettoize them. And, you know, a lot of the things we're talking about on the external borderline of Europe, for instance, or on the US-Mexico borderline, is not dissimilar from that. You know, it's it's that sense that almost borders these days aren't so much separating nation from nation, but rich from poor. And and I think that's the trend that we're seeing right now. And it's, you know, it's, it's a worrying trend. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you talk a lot about the US-Mexico border. You give us a wonderful history, in fact, of the border. And then you bring it up to date. And of course, that's there's an artwork there too, isn't there? Make art great again, a, a kind of play on MAGA. Yes, and well, it's been demolished now that um, there was a, an attempt, actually there are two attempts to have the southern border wall designated as a national monument of all things. And the first was in 2017 when Donald Trump created these eight border wall prototypes. So he'd, he'd gone out looking for you know, construction companies to devise a new wall idea. One of the construction companies was actually Hadrian. Interestingly, it was, it was a time, I don't know if it was any long, long distant relation of, of Roman Hadrian. And um, so this Swiss conceptual artist petitioned to, to Congress to say, let's have this designated as land art. Because, he fa- you know, he found it kind of slightly haunting. And, you know, this, this annoyed a lot of other artists who thought it was, you know, it was despicable what he was suggesting. But I think there was a point there. He, his point was, let it remain as a, as a memory of how xenophobia took over, fear of the other took over this country for a while. So we, we remember where we were. Then the second attempt was actually by a Republican politician, um, congressional representative called Madison Cawthorn, who devised what he called the Donument Act. And this was in 2021 to have sections of the wall through Texas and Arizona protected in perpetuity so that a new government, so that Biden's government couldn't bring it down, couldn't demolish it. And, you know, it just felt like such a sad situation that you would hold up this rusting steel barrier as as a national symbol. Although if you take, you know, MAGA and isolationism and America first policies to their logical extreme, then probably it is an appropriate monument <laughs> to, to what was going on there. We were talking uh, briefly about climate change, but of course that really does influence borders. For instance, you talk about the uh, the Grafner ice sheet. Yeah, so the, the Grafner is a, it's a glacier in the Austrian-Italian Alps that I, I travelled and hiked up to. And the reason I went there is because it's a, it's a borderline. Not only is it a borderline between Austria and Italy, it's a moving borderline, and it's the first moving borderline in the world. It's the first border that is conceptualised in law as being a moving borderline. And this is because the border there was always devised to follow the watershed. And... You would think that's relatively simple, how, you know, follow the watershed if the rain that falls on a mountain ridge flows to the north, you're in Austria. If it flows to the south, you're in Italy. But what if that mountain ridge is covered in ice? You know, glaciers are not static. They're always moving. So the watershed is always moving. And they were genuinely trying to deal with this, mapping it every few years and finding that the border had shifted. So diplomatically, they were then having... The diplomatic theory was you're not you've got to retain the same exact same amount of territory for a nation. So then they were having to do, you know, um, sort of all sorts of of bureaucratic nonsense and allocating certain pieces of land back and forward. And they got so sick of it, they said, well, here's a solution. 
why don't we just say the border is wherever that glacier has moved to and wherever that watershed has moved to. So interesting. But on top of that, with climate change, it's melting. It's disappearing, you know. And so you, you have a metaphor in this moving border from melting border and that you take that metaphor even further. When that glacier disappears, the entire earth will look different because when we reach that temperature point, we'll have rising sea levels, we'll have parts of the world that are uninhabitable. So it's it's almost like a sort of doomsday clock for, for the rest of the world. This book is so rich. You talk into how walls have gone online, China's great internet firewall. You talk about how disease influences borders and how we behave around borders. What I'd really like to end with, though, is to look at the end of borders. Do we need borders to order the world? How would we have governments, economies and so on without borders? I mean, I think the interesting thing about our our present position is that borders are clearly demonstrating that they're not sustainable. And, you know, we've talked about the walls that are rising all across the world. I mean, you know, at the end of the Cold War, there were only around 12 border walls in the world. Now there's about 74 and climbing. So, you know, that's over a six-fold increase, you know, and most of those have been built since the start of the noughties. But in many ways, these walls are being built not really to stop people crossing, but they're being built to appeal to voter bases who like the idea of stopping people crossing. So that, you know, because if you look at, say, the UK government's Rwanda policy, that's about outsourcing a border. You know, American border agents have been operating in Guatemala to try and stop people moving northwards. In 2021, you had this story breaking about how Frontex, which is the EU's border agency, have been funding the Libyan Coast Guard to stop migrants crossing, making sure they're brought back to North Africa and then they're, they're put into militia-run, um, almost, con- or some have described them as concentration camps, but, you know, detention centres for migrants to make these stopping points. So borders are, in one sense, being pushed outwards, You know, it's no longer that line on the map, it's somewhere else. At the same time, with all the data gathering that's going on, they're also increasingly looking inwards at the individual. And I think that's the two ways that borders are going further out to stop, because as I say, it's not really about nation against nation anymore. It's more about stopping migrant flow, population flow. You know, the UN announced that for the first time ever, we've passed over 100 million displaced people in the world. And that's what borders are about. Now, One of the things with climate change that I think and a a question we need to ask going forward is could there ever be a universal right to move? Because that doesn't exist. You know, if you think of all the universal human rights that we have, the right to move isn't one of them. There's the right to move within your country of origin. There's a right to leave your country of origin and come back to it, but not just to move. But if with climate change, parts of the world and parts of the world with huge populations increasingly become uninhabitable, and there isn't a place to move within that country, then it would feel like people cannot, don't have the, the right to live. And do we have to look at a human right to move? Now, I think the significant problem with that is that does not work with the current system of bordering and sovereignty that we operate. So I'm not sure where we're going, but I think the signs are clearly there that borders, as we know them, this system that dates back 350 years, it's not sustainable, it's not working, it's broken. So is there a way to fix it? James Crawford, fabulous. Thank you so much. It's such an interesting book. The Edge of the Plain, How Borders Make and Break Our World. It's published by Canongate and it's out now. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull, Steph Chungu and Lillian Fawcett. 
You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>